0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast, stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence, to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, just like every episode we've had so far. We have a really good guest today, who's done some really good stuff. Um, and I'm I'm sitting here in Lynchburg, Virginia. Co-host Russell Dennis is sitting in Denver, Colorado. Hello, Russell. Greetings and salutations. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome back. We do these uh, podcast interviews every Tuesday at two. And uh, you're listening to these. I don't care when it is. It might be a year from when we recorded it or later. You can always go to the nonprofitexchange.org, the nonprofitexchange.org. You can see the archives of three years, like Russell said, three years worth of incredible interviews. And today is no exception. We have sitting in Raleigh, North Carolina, Rod Brooks. Rod, hello.
1: Hello, Hugh. Good to be with you and Russell. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast.
0: We um, The people that are listening can't see, but Rod's got this big map behind him, and he's he's sitting in the offices, the main offices of an organization called Rise Against Hunger. And Rod, our custom here is to let guests uh, share things about themselves, do that, f- and somewhere in there talk about Rise Against Hunger, because that's not the original name for this organization, mm-hmm. but just get us acquainted with, with you and with the organization, please.
1: I would love to. Well, I I love sharing about Rise Against Hunger. It's an amazing organization. We are an international nonprofit organization. Our mission is to end hunger in our lifetime. And we were, as you uh, referenced, we were initially founded as Stop Hunger Now. So it was about a year ago that we changed our name from Stop Hunger Now to Rise Against Hunger. We are headquartered here in Raleigh, North Carolina. But in fact, we've grown quite a bit since uh, as to our establishment. And now we have uh, offices throughout the United States in about 20 cities. We also have established affiliate Rise Against Hunger organizations in five other countries outside the U.S., including South Africa, Malaysia, India, Italy, and the Philippines. So uh, we, we've grown quite a bit. We're probably most well-known for our meal packaging program. This is a program where volunteers package high-protein dehydrated meals that we use in a very strategic way, feeding children through school feeding programs. This is a very strategic way to end hunger because on the one hand, you provide uh, nutrition that enables those children to learn. But in addition you you provide an incentive for parents to send their, kid, their kids to school. We often see when we, school, when we start school feeding programs that the school enrollment will double, triple, quadruple. And as more children get into school, education, vocational training opportunities, literacy levels increase. And it's through that that you can begin to break the cycle of poverty uh, around the world that so often keeps people hungry. And so... That is a, a program that has uh, grown dramatically uh, since we started the uh, the program. I remember the first our, our very first meal packaging event was December uh, two thousand and five and that first full year two thousand and six, we packaged one point seven million meals, which we distributed uh, to partners around the world last year we and just in the us alone we packaged nearly sixty million meals engaged 380,000 volunteers, and um, we nourish the lives of more than a million, 40,000 people. So uh, our impact is great, and and not only is our our impact through providing these meals and, and nutrition through school feeding programs, but we also support programs that enhance local food production, that enhance local family incomes, which increases access to food and which leverages natural resources. Those are sustainable community development projects, which we support to help end, end hunger on a permanent basis. We're also very much involved in crisis relief as well as advocacy around hunger. So we try to take a very holistic approach to, to ending hunger, and we're very, uh, we're, we, we feel like we're part of the movement, we're like we're part of supporting the movement to end hunger around the world.
0: And tell us about you what's your background and uh, how did you end up in this seat what was what was the, the chapters before this that prepared you for this
1: sure well uh, interesting I, I was born and raised in North Carolina, and I confess that uh, through high school I had never traveled out of the state much less the country uh, until my my the summer after my senior year in high school where I went on a school field trip on one of those sort of 14 countries in 11 days uh, type trips. (laughs) and uh, I suppose that uh, piqued my interest. Uh, I'm not sure if it was the beer we drank in Munich or what, but it piqued my interest in uh, in international travel. And that led me to, I had already been studying Spanish in high school, but when I got to college, I uh, had a professor there named Professor LeRae, who was the spitting image of Don Quixote. And uh, he convinced me that I needed, needed to go spend my junior year living in S- Seville, Spain. I did that. I lived uh, in Spain for a year on a uh, junior year study abroad program. And I can only describe that experience as life-changing. It, it took a person who was born and raised in North Carolina uh, and just completely changed my perspective. I realized in particular how much I had in common with people around the world that despite the differences uh, in culture and language and taste and what have you, that uh, there was just a tremendous amount that we shared at heart. And that was what um, led me to an interest in global education and and eventually working uh, internationally. When I graduated from UNC Chapel Hill uh, with a degree in Spanish and economics, I went to work for a nonprofit organization uh, whose founder had a vision to create a global learning center in downtown Raleigh. He, uh, like I had had lived a couple years abroad. He was a Peace Corps volunteer living and working in India. And uh, it was appealing to me to, uh, to help develop a learning center like that where people could essentially gain the experience that I had, which was to learn how we were connected with people and places around the world. And so for 16 years, Hugh, it's a, um, remarkable that I was able to hold a job for 16 years right out of college, but somehow they let, they kept letting me put on different hats and uh, I went from just managing one of the outreach programs to ultimately being the vice president for administration with that organization called Explorus. Uh, I was there through the conceptualization, the design, the fundraising. It was about a $80 million project and I was fortunate to be involved in the fundraising learned a lot through that experience. Uh, ultimately, the construction and operation of the museum. Uh, so that had been my uh, my background prior to joining with Rise Against Hunger, which again at the time was called Stop Hunger Now. And that actually leads me to um, to I think the topic today that I, I think uh, is might be of interest to your listeners to to hear about, uh, and that is uh, how I became involved with uh, Stop hunger now! Now rise against hunger, and what that uh, what that process was for becoming CEO of an organization that um, began with a very um, passionate, visionary, charismatic founder, and and how we achieved that uh, that transition. Um, that's what I'd love to to share with you today, and and uh, would love to answer any questions that you have too.
0: And well, that's quite a story. You had. Um... Um, you had some pretty significant training before you came to this job. That's, that's I did. Uh, quite I did. Remarkable. That's quite remarkable. Now, um, I want to remind the listeners that we did interview Ray Buchanan, the founder, uh, several months ago. And he talked about the history and the philosophy and whatnot. And you're taking this into a, a different direction. Um, and you and Ray are closely connected. And actually, Ray introduced us when I visited your offices, which are quite impressive. This, this open space. And you don't have an office of closed doors, literally. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you're, you're out there with people and you're very engaged with people. And uh, I, I was most impressed with the creativity and how that space was created so people could interact. But everything is tidy. Um, people are working there. They're working hard, but it's very organized. I, so I've just, I, I'm sure people get a lot more done. <laughs> when they can find things, so I was yeah. uh, I, I was impressed with your leadership when I walked in that door, and where we talked, and, and we we're centering around leadership and and how we have this ability to make things happen. And there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that have tried things and they couldn't make them happen. Um, they've tried to be a founder. They've tried to take it uh, the next step from the founder. They've they've stepped into a um, we call it non nonprofit. It's the only Organization in the world, we define by what we're not. Uh, we step into this role, and we really haven't gotten the the boxy, the skill, the ability to lead it. And I, I see by the results, but the the stories you're telling that um, you are probably the person uniquely equipped to take the mantle for this and move it forward. So let me start. Um, I want to I want to clarify a couple of things. You feed people with these these uh, these food food this food that you prepare. I accidentally went with my wife to a local conference center and there were a bunch of Methodist youth and we went for a dialogue about their faith, but we walked in on people setting up, you have a local chapter here, an affiliate setting up a a packaging program. And it was, it was a picture of energy. I think in less than an hour, they packaged 25,000 meals. It was remarkable.
1: That's right. Well, that that is one of the amazing things about our, our program. The the meal packaging events that we host, uh, that we conduct, they're uh, a huge amount of fun. We, we It's amazing that um, in, in, in preparing a very simple meal that, that is comprised of rice, soy, dehydrated vegetables, and a vitamin formulation specifically designed for malnourished people, it's amazing that uh, you can have so much fun preparing these and at the same time be so fulfilled knowing that When you scoop that cup of rice in the funnel, you're just one step away from actually feeding someone. Um, That's what I hear from volunteers all the time. And our program managers out in the field do a fantastic job really engaging people of all ages in this uh, remarkable experience. It's it's, uh, a group of 50 people can package 10,000 servings in just a couple of hours. So it really can make a huge impact.
0: Oh, these were youth. They were on it. Just poof. (laughs) It was an energy field. So, Part of your dialogue, you give people the food, but you also teach them things. What is the teaching part of how do they get out of this hunger situation?
1: Well, the, the important thing for us is to recognize that, that ending hunger is very much about empowering people. And uh, our, our our method here for ending hunger, again, we, we try to look at ending hunger holistically, and we uh, focus on how we can create transformation in people's lives uh, we recognize that there's on the one hand a very immediate impact of the meals that we provide. Uh, I've had uh, physicians, for example. there was one physician that I spoke to who shared with me that she went to has been traveling to Guatemala for five, six years each year. And each year uh, prior to uh, prior to our providing meals in this community, she found that the children there were suffering severe, uh, effects from malnutrition, hunger and malnutrition. It was only a year later that from when we started providing meals in this community that she contacted me and said, you know, I'm amazed that in the period of one year, the children that I'm serving here, they're they're not exhibiting the 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 the, the, the effects of, of hunger and malnutrition. If anything, I'm here treating cuts and bruises, the kinds of things that happen to kids when they're active and can play. Uh, So it's uh, amazing what what happens truly in just providing the kind of nutrition that we do in such a short amount of time. But what's also very important is the long-term impact of these meals that we're providing. Again, when we start a school feeding program, it provides an incentive for parents to send their children to school. Uh, We tend to take sort of universal access in school here in the United States a bit for granted, but that's certainly not the case around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we often see when we start a school feeding program that the school enrollment dramatically increases. That of course provides greater access to uh, literacy, vocational training. And it's through that, uh, that education that we can begin to break the cycle of poverty. What we also find though, is that the majority of that increase in school enrollment is young girls. It's often young girls who are, not educated in a developing in a developing community country in the world. And so on average, studies show that a girl who is not educated uh, might have between seven and eight kids in her lifetime. Whereas if she is educated, she's learning to read and write, that birth rate drops to between two and three children on average. As a result, maternal health rates dramatically increase. Uh, with fewer children being born, infant mortality rates decrease significantly because more resources are are provided for those kids that are there. And that has a huge impact over time in actually reducing um, the number of children that are born each year. And and, uh, uh, we see more children living past the age of five. So it's these long-term benefits that we often emphasize. And then, of course, along with the nutrition programs that we support, we're supporting programs that uh, increase local production food production. One example is again, in Guatemala, we began working about 18 months ago with a a local group of farmers there who uh, learning of our organization because of the meals that we provided in their community came to us and said, we would like to start raising tilapia fish in our community. And we provided uh, some funding about $42,000. We provided technical expertise and some help with their program design But ultimately, this is something that we have empowered them to do locally. We saw uh, not only more food being produced in the community, some of which was shared with the school feeding program we were supporting, but we also saw the incomes of those farmers dramatically increase. And so that is something that we recognize that, you know, through those types of programs, we can eradicate hunger community by community around the world.
0: That is remarkable. I, I detect this is not a... Just a cerebral thing. It's not just a job for you. It's a passion. Um, you're, when you talk about it, the passion comes out, and that's that's underlying this. But you do have the skill set. I want to have you talk about the journey. That's so remarkable. Your program is is stopping hunger, but it's also economic development and it's jobs creation. It's a number of things. Community community engagement. So it's a number of things, right?
1: And Hugh, there's one other piece which I have to emphasize, and and the reason that I think our meal packaging program is so powerful is that, as I mentioned, last year we engaged about 380,000 volunteers around the world packaging meals. We could have, conceivably, we could have packaged those meals with a machine (laughs) in a factory somewhere, but there's a reason that we engage volunteers, and that is that we believe that in order to end hunger, we have to create a movement to end hunger. We have to create the general will, as well as the political will, to mobilize the resources to end hunger. And so I like to think that those that we engaged last year are 380,000 hunger fighters who are now engaged in a very hands-on way in ending hunger. They've become more aware of hunger, where and how it exists and why, and they've become aware that they're Some very specific, successful, sustainable things that we can do to end hunger. Uh, So this is why we have a focus on this. And interestingly, we have just launched a campaign I want to share with everyone. It's called This is Possible. Uh, Something exciting happened in September of 2015. The United Nations adopted the Sustainable Development Goals. SDG number two is to achieve zero hunger by the year 2030, just 12 years from now. It turns out that one of the biggest challenges to achieving that goal is is simply the fact that many people don't realize that hunger doesn't have to exist. They don't realize that we produce enough food in the world to feed every single person. Uh, They don't realize that, in fact, over the last two decades, we've made tremendous progress in reducing the number of people who are malnourished around Around the world, by as much as twenty percent. In fact, we still have challenges. We still see an increase in hunger due to uh, conflict and people being displaced from their homes. Uh, and in fact, you know, we saw a bump in the in the number of people that are malnourished due to conflict over the past couple of years. But when you look at the trajectory, we are clearly on a trajectory to end hunger by twenty thirty, and that's what this campaign, this is possible, is really all about—to illustrate to to people that. Ending hunger is not this huge, insurmountable problem, but rather a series of smaller problems that are solvable through, again, effective, proven, uh, sustainable solutions. So look on our website, riseagainsthunger.org, and be sure to check out our new website, which is 2030ispossible.org, to learn more about how, in fact, we can end hunger by 2030.
0: Those are numbers, two zero three zero. is (laughs)
1: is 2030ispossible.org. <laughs>
0: okay. Um, wow. That's quite remarkable. Um, and so you came into an organization. It's like rotten on a conveyor belt that's already gone. You, you came into an organization that, was, that had a good board, it had a good vision, had a good program. And so there was a transition from the previous leadership to you and then you're making a transition to the future. I guess you were in the middle of this rebranding, renaming, re-identifying um, who we are because you couldn't operate in every country, country mm-hmm. with the trademark um, before. Now you've got Rise Against Hunger. and Now you can go anywhere with that. But you've, okay. you've led it through some transitions, and I'm, I'm willing to bet sitting here uh, watching you. You've got steps in your mind on the transition going forward. I encounter a whole lot of leaders that are stuck, because they haven't really put a structure in place, haven't really communicated the vision. And really they're more doers than they are leaders. They haven't let go of enough stuff. So talk about the the calling of leadership for you and how you've empowered yourself for this job, those transitions that i talked about. Talk about the leadership piece of this.
1: Well, I, I think I can do that through describing a bit of how I got here, how Ray and I worked together. Uh, and then how I've, uh, you know, succeeded Ray, um, although he continues certainly to be involved. So let me describe what I would consider those four phases. Um, I will say that I think um, that Rise Against Hunger, we have accomplished an effective transition from, uh, again, a very successful, passionate, visionary founder uh, to me as a successor CEO. And that, you know, frankly is, you know, we recognize that is a, that is a, often a step that is very difficult for um, you know, founder-based nonprofit organizations. So uh, I think there's value in describing this transition. Um, I, I, I do want to point out that this transition I'm going to describe took place over nine years, and I, I recognize that we were very fortunate to have had that, that amount of time. And honestly, uh, I, I'm glad that your listeners have uh, had a chance to, to get to know Ray uh, because it's very much to his credit that um, I think we've been able to successfully make this transition. But let me start just with how we met. Uh, again, I mentioned that before working with Rise Against Tanger, I was at a museum in downtown Raleigh. And I was there in December of 2004 when the uh, the enormous tsunami struck Southeast Asia. On that day, about 300,000 people lost their lives, a terrible Terrible tragedy, and we at the museum we held a day uh, where we invited nonprofit organizations in to raise money and awareness for the relief efforts. And Stop Hunger Now, uh, as we were recalled then, was one of the organizations we we uh, invited in. It was then that I met Ray, and I, immediately I was just so moved by his his passion and his vision of a world without hunger. Frankly, it, it was not; it was something that I had never considered before i as i'm sure most people have always sort of taken hunger for granted that it just existed in the world and Mm -hmm. maybe a bit apathetic that there was nothing we could do about it but not for ray he clearly had a vision that that ending hunger was not only possible but was also very much a moral imperative something that we couldn't afford not to do and so um that was what was so powerful about you know to me and meeting ray Interestingly, as, uh, as uh, fate works, a, a year later, the museum that I had worked for 16 years to create and construct and, and bring about ended up merging with a, uh, another organization. And my position as vice president for administration was eliminated in that merger. Mm. We had a board member in common, however one who, who served both on the on both boards for the museum and, and for uh, Stop Hunger Now, who said, you know, Rod, remember Ray Buchanan you met a year ago? Why don't you go talk to him? Because I understand the board at Stop Hunger Now is interested in hiring a CEO to sort of work with Ray to develop the organization. So Ray and I had breakfast in January of 2006. And I recall that that meeting very well. Um, it was great reconnecting with Ray. um it was also very clear that he, he wasn't necessarily very sure of what he needed in a CEO or wanted or, um, and, and so, and, and quite frankly, I had been you know, working for 16 years. I wasn't, wasn't, I didn't know that I was ready to jump into something else right away. And so, you know, I said, well, well, let me just, let me volunteer with you. And I think, you know, let's do some strategic planning together. I've got some ideas for funding perhaps we can explore, uh, but let me just volunteer. And so for a period of five months, I, I volunteered with Ray and the small staff uh, that we had on board. Then there was a total of, of five people then and, um, and did just that. We, we worked together to create a strategic plan. We had just uh, Ray had just started the meal packaging program. And so I was learning about that and learning about hunger. And it was during that five month period that we realized, Hey, there's, there's some good chemistry here. We both share, a passion, although clearly I didn't know as much about ending hunger as Ray did very little in fact. Um, but we, we realized that we could work well together. We shared a passion. We, um, just felt like it was a good fit. And then we, uh, we decided that, okay, well, why don't we actually pursue this? There was no money for hiring a CEO at the time. Uh, but there was one donor a a donor who had provided some startup funding for, for stop hunger now in 1998 who we went to go visit uh, and he ended up uh, knowing Ray. He he said, yeah, I think you would benefit from having someone to work with. And uh, he ended up providing funding to fund my position for the first couple of years. So that was how we got, that was how we got started. Following that uh, there was a a period of about six years where we co-led the organization. And, you know, again, this is very much to Ray's credit uh, that he had the, I think he brought me on with the idea of succession Uh, and and certainly to his credit, he um, recognized uh, the opportunity that, uh, that I could afford the organization, but, but also, you know, recognized there was room for me to grow and, and I felt very empowered by what he was able to provide for me. But during this six year period, you know, we, we actually did define it as a, um, that we were a management team. We actually amended the bylaws of the organization to define a management team consisting of Ray as the founder and myself as the CEO. Uh, We amended the bylaws, and that was really to establish clear expectations for the board. Generally, uh, I focused on the sort of internal development, the processes, the creating the infrastructure for the organization, while Ray focused a lot on the external relations, the fundraising, speaking, And he certainly provided much inspiration to our very young staff as we grew, as well as lots of of training for me in particular around hunger. We, during this time, were a real team. And I feel incredibly fortunate to have been able to learn from Ray during this time. Very generous. And, you know, for any founder that's out there, um, you know, this is something that I can really offer that I think it would have been easy for Ray to have, um, you know, held back or not shared everything, but really during that period, I was able to internalize not only just the knowledge that he had in his head, but really the passion that he had for our mission. And that was something that was such a gift that he provided to me during that time. So um, that time where we were working together as a team was a very effective period of very significant growth. And over, uh, frankly, the, the last 12 years, uh, we've grown from an organization uh, of about five people with a budget of about $800,000 to uh, now our annual budget is about $23 million. Uh, we have about 140 people on our staff, and we distribute another $26 million in in-kind aid around the world. So we've really seen exponential growth. And that period where we were um, co-leading the organization as is, is a period where we saw uh, perhaps the most rapid um, rate of growth
0: but wanna, it wasn't a, I want to highlight a couple of things Russell um, Rob's given us a, a permission to interrupt and, and clarify some things and highlight some things um, I don't know if you're hearing what I hear Russell but there's so many quote leaders right that will not take input you know I'm, I've got to show it myself and so yeah. what I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you in that dialogue to, well you, you had a willing giver and right of course Yes. Not everybody would be willing to take that input and to create that partnership. So, yes. Russell, how many people have we met in in our careers that are going to just figure it out and do it, and they don't want to take this kind of kind of support? I mean, you you've met a few, haven't you?
2: Well, it's really painful to watch. You know, I I think two things were going on. Ray probably had got a hold of a of a copy of the Founder's Dilemma and read that, and you know. <laughs> Well, one of the things I know you mentioned being in Spain, and you know nothing like a little bit of wine agrees the skids. You just you just hung around too long, and I'm telling you, if you hang around long enough, they're gonna find something for you to do. It, it, it never fails. Your, your case, but, yeah, it, it, it never fails, but. But you did all of the uh pretty much did everything right as far as ramping things up, and that's pretty important and if you If you try to do things by yourself, you're really uh heading for trouble, and that's where you ramp up by leveraging everybody's efforts and I've seen some other people do things like Travis Smith here in uh in Denver. He started an organization called Impact Locally, and they're in Colorado. Uh, they're in 11 cities, by the way, I, the Philadelphia, Denver, just two of the cities area. But mobilizing all of these volunteers, that's huge yeah. uh, to pack lunches. I've gone and packed some lunches, and we, we've cranked out 1,200 sack lunches in 45 minutes. <laughs> and, you know, you, you get volunteers. People can get involved in, in – uh, you can really leverage the effort of volunteers to actually feel like uh, they're doing something. And then after we put it all together, we go as a group, and we have a uh, a route of maybe 12 different places where homeless people appear and distribute it. And it, uh, it, it really engages everybody. It keeps people going. You have some different people every month, but it's got a lot of energy. The other thing I like is what, My friend Wendy Lipton Dibner calls ethical bribes, and that's getting these meals out to the students. That's (laughs) there's there's a purpose to getting that out, and there's so many other benefits. It's just a really neat ethical bribe, and you'd be surprised how many kids here go without uh, good meals who are eligible for free food right here in the United States. So that's uh, that's pretty critical, and trying to find ways to uh, develop food sustainably is, is, uh, is remarkable. It's a great, uh, great business model. And yeah, so, right. yeah. And,
0: and I just, I, I want to go back to the leadership piece of, of, so you have common people, but you onboarded from five to 140 people mm-hmm. and, you know, creating systems. So what we see commonly is that leaders do over function. So it limits that growth and limits the functionality of others. So I just wanted to highlight that piece of your story where you were open, transparent, vulnerable. You, you took input, but you also empowered others, not only in the volunteer program, but I, I, what I see in, in your staff and your, your board and your other workers. So I just wanted to isolate that as, as we look at best practices for leaders. So sorry to interrupt your momentum there, but that, that was too good to let it pass.
1: Absolutely. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. And again, you know, that, that period as Ray and I were working really as a team, was one of the periods of most rapid growth, and um, you know, it, it was very much. A, I think it was um, uh, our skills so complemented each other, and and we worked together and found out how to work really closely. I do want to point out, though, um, before this all sounds too rosy, that you know there were some challenges during that period. Um, there were challenges like, you know, with co-leading an organization, who do staff turn to where is the ultimate accountability that the board needs to look to? Um, Between the two of us, Ray and I had to make sure that we didn't overcommit the organization and we had to stay very close together on commitments and decisions that we were making. I think we, uh, we overcame some of those challenges um, through a number of things. Um, One, frankly, was just the ability to have very candid conversations together when, when things went wrong. And, you know, that was uh, that. That came about through the strong relationship and sense of trust that we had built with each other um, from the day that I started volunteering through the years that we had worked together. Uh, we were courageous enough to speak candidly with one another, and I can't say enough how much I value that in the relationship that we had. I always uh, another thing was that I always felt that Ray was invested in my success. Again, he. I think you're probably right, Russell. Maybe he did pick up a copy of that book, The Founder's Dilemma. But he he realized that that his success would depend on my success and following And Again, I always felt that he was really invested in my success. And frankly, I feel like he continues to be. You know, looking back on those days, I recognize how it would have been really easy perhaps for him to have felt threatened. But I certainly never experienced that. And and likewise, I will share with you honestly, that from my perspective, I think initially when I came on board, um, that initially I felt a, um, I felt a lot of pressure that, that I had to be the one that people expected me to be just like Ray. Uh, it it took me a few years. It took me some, uh, learning and sort of coming into my own to give myself permission to, to be myself as the leader in this organization. And I think that as I came into that, um, that it also strengthened my ability to honor Ray as the founder. And at the same, st- at the same time, sort of stand in my strength as, as a leader. And again, I just really feel fortunate that Ray uh, empowered me during those years to really build that sense of um, self. And, and we did it in a way that, that really was honoring and respectful of each other.
0: But you're right. That is a common stumbling block for leaders coming in after someone else. To, yeah. to give yourself permission to be you. And that's, that's the authenticity of a transformational leader. Uh, right. We can't, you couldn't be Ray. Um, was yeah. that an immediate um, revelation or an awareness that, that you needed to be you or was that a growing awareness as you worked the job?
1: I think that was a growing awareness for me personally, frankly, because again, you know, Ray, and again, I'm glad your listeners have had a chance to meet Ray because he's a, again, a very visionary, passionate, charismatic kind of person. And, you know, you, you step in, you, you follow someone like that. And again, you sort of feel this pressure, at least I did to, you know, be that guy. And it turns out I had to be my own person <laughs> in, in order to lead successfully. And Ray was very supportive of me in, in uh stepping into that, coming into that, uh, into that role.
0: You're giving us some important lessons for all of us, even though, we, we, we teach this, Ross, and we still have some of these traps. So go on with your journey. This is a fascinating journey, and I just wanted to highlight some of these leadership awareness pieces, the competency, and then I'm sure there's times you had to reboot and refocus as you grew into this job, which is That's huge. Right.
1: That's right. Well, then, you know, with that, we come into sort of the next phase, which was that um, Ray had less and less as of an interest in sort of the day-to-day operations of the organization and frankly was interested in, in pursuing some other activities like writing a book, which he did. Um, so when it came to that time and, and we, we both sort of knew that time had arrived. We, we knew that I was in a place where I could take responsibility and Ray was again in a place where he felt very confident and trustful in me and, 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 wanted to pursue other activities too we worked with the board then to define a phased retirement period over a three-year period the first year of which Ray continued to work full-time but the second year he reduced his time to 50% and the third year to 25% and it was during that transition period then that I assumed all the day-to-day responsibility of running the organization We went back and reamended the the organizational bylaws to reflect my role as president and CEO. Um, I was the sole person responsible to the board. Uh, And it was through that process that we established me as the the leader of the organization. And it alleviated some of the confusion around who was, who was responsible and who was casting the vision for the organization going forward. Um, And again, I, I really appreciate, you know, Ray's support through that period. Um, because it, it took his leadership uh, to support me in assuming that role. And it took my stepping into that role to support him and making the transition that he wanted to make too. Uh, we also sort of um, that, that three year period culminated in a wonderful celebration of uh, Ray's retirement that we did in September, 2015. Uh, hundreds of people in the audience, um, awards and recognition and people speaking about just the amazing vision that Ray had and really honoring him as the founder of the organization. And that for me was one of the most meaningful, um, gifts that we could provide to thank Ray for all that he had done in establishing this organization. And just to acknowledge how he was such an inspiration to all of us who have become involved in the
0: organization. Mm -hmm. I hear underlying all of this, there's an infancy on strategy. Many times the, the people that are in your seat are visionary, but not tactical. Mm-hmm. And so putting that together and having a track that everybody knows where you're going. So yeah. I keep hearing you coming back to, we've built a strategy around this and a work plan. So I, that's, that's a really huge piece for leaders to pay attention to because people that's think right. that that inhibits their creativity. And our saying in Center Vision is your strategy is your container for creativity. So right. now that you have a strategy, you can put your effort toward doing what doing your work. So anchored in what you're saying, um, lots of good leadership principles, but anchored in strategy is a real high point for me. I just didn't want to let that one pass. Go well, ahead. I, 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 I agree Larissa. with back
1: and just, just to add what you were describing, that I think that you know that crafting that three year transition. Um, you know, I really have to commend our, our board during that time because um, they were they asked us to be very strategic about that. They asked us to put timeframes and specific deliverables and um, expectations in place. Uh, uh, there was a lot of accountability that the board um, required of us as we were going through that process. And so um, that th- there's a there's a there's a valuable lesson I think for boards of directors um, in that they have to take a responsibility to help facilitate this type of transition. Um, the, the last piece here that I would mention is that, you know, I'm very proud that there is a, a fourth phase and that fourth phase continues in fact, uh, now, uh, and that is this phase as, um, Ray, uh, the founder as an advocate for the organization. Uh, I think in, in any, and let me start with this, that in any organizational development as I've, as I've studied organizational change, uh, you know, I've recognized that organizations certainly need to focus on what needs to change in the future in order to expand your impact or have, achieve greater results or what have you. But in the same way, it's also very important to continue to honor the best parts of the past. And for our organization, as, 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 as growth-focused, as, <laughs> as strategically uh, focused as we are, uh, we recognize that, that for our organization, that has always meant honoring the vision, and the tenacity, and the spirit that Ray has always inspired in us. Um, so it was important for us that we, as an organization, and, and frankly for myself in particular, that we continue to honor Ray and the vision that he cast for the organization. Uh, so in this fourth phase, if you will, which again continues, we. Defined a role for Ray, which is as an advocate for the organization, a global ambassador. Uh, In this capacity, he makes appearances and speaks on behalf of the organization's mission. end Hunger, he's very effective at that, a very charismatic speaker, very passionate. Uh, He's involved in our donor stewardship program, helping helping us to acknowledge key donors. It means a lot when Ray is there for those types of events to recognize the significant milestones that our donors have achieved. He continues to participate in key strategic planning meetings that, for example, we've had with our international affiliates around the world. Um, And I feel like really that there – I say this is an ongoing phase because I I still feel like that there are opportunities for us to explore that we haven't even uh, capitalized on yet, where we can even continue to enhance this role. And I know that's something that he's very interested in. Um, But it's a – again, it's a very – I guess to your point, it is something that we, it's a role that we defined intentionally.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's something that, uh, again, there's accountability around uh, and that we both have responsibility for holding.
0: Those are, those are um, words that people toss around, but they're not really willing to commit to them. And because of that, it, it penalizes their success and, and it compromises the work. And um, so there's a, a built-in accountability with your strategy, which really, it's not a punitive thing. Accountability, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. It's sort of the other side that people now know how to help you do what you're going to do. Yes. And what I'm seeing with you is you're very transparent about what you're doing. Am I hearing that correctly?
1: I try to be. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And and frankly, you know, that I appreciate you mentioning that and I don't take it lightly. It was I think what made this transition so successful is that Ray and I were able to be very transparent in describing mm-hmm. what was happening. Uh, you know, our work with the board, um, uh, sharing this message with the staff. Uh, as an organization grows, it is more difficult to communicate uh, across a larger organization, so we had to spend extra time really focused on that. Uh, again, it was um, it, it wasn't. I, I don't. Pretend at all to say that it was smooth the entire time. There were clearly periods where you know people were confused and and maybe they didn't understand um, uh, you know where we were going. But we always worked to try to hear those concerns and to speak to them. And there were there were frequent occasions when you know we would speak through you know a town hall meeting or even one on one meetings or departmental meetings and just spend time really focusing on where are we going. What is this looking? What is this looking like in the future? And are things looking differently now? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Very good, very good story, Russell. What? Um, what other? Did you note any other leadership points that you'd like to highlight from this really interesting dialogue he's given us?
2: Well, I've just kind of been mesmerized here. There are a couple of thoughts that hit my mind. The first was that. Ray didn't want to follow himself with another Ray, and you know the the rule that you never let a great leader pick a successor. He blew that rule up, just <laughs> completely obliterated that, uh, made it null and void, and 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 showed you that it is workable. And I suspect if we get him in the room and get him to come clean he'll admit to us how many more rounds of golf that he's playing and how long he wanted to play more golf before he met you. And, you know, how many rounds he could see when he started talking to you that first time or
1: Oh. I'm, not, I'm not sure, Russell. You know how passionate Ray is about any younger. So he's uh, – <laughs> I don't see him on a golf course by any means.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you find out a lot about him. But anyway, I mean, it's just spending that time. And you've done great work as far as uh, putting together a succession plan. Uh, and that's that's the way you do it. You actually build it and create it and craft it in. It takes time. All of these things take time, but you step into your own and great leaders build great leaders. That's how an organization continues, rolls on, expands and grows, because that should run the same way, whether you're there or not. Yes. and This is the power of systems. This is what happens when people uh, know what uh, needs to be done. But I'd like to go back and talk, and, and a, a, a lot of trouble or a lot of difficulty, and I had a, a conversation with a young lady at a nonprofit that uh, that I was introduced to who thought, oh, the work you're, he's doing is great, so I'd like to talk to him. And I had a conversation with her, and uh, by now, there's been some, some burnout on the board. Uh, there was a lot of energy put toward a grand initiative that didn't come to fruition and so a lot of the people that were there just kind of burned out but the key is that leadership and of course you got to have a great board of directors talk a little bit about how you managed to get them to understand what it was that you needed from them and have them come forward Uh, or did you just stumble into a awesome board of director factory and go and pick the ones off the shelf that you like. How did that happen? Because none of this happens in a vacuum. And so uh, talk about how that the the board uh, started, how it developed, how it shifted, how you bring new people in. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, it's a great question. And the board plays such an important role, especially uh, in facilitating this type of Transition, and you know, when I started, we we had a, a much smaller board. We had about six six people, I believe, at the time, six or seven people at the time. Now we had to have a board of nineteen people. We have a variety of skill sets that we needed to add to our board. Um, and, and I, and uh, at this now is the point where I have to acknowledge that, um, as much as I've tried to be an effective leader, I can't help but acknowledge that you know the right there's a huge amount of providence in what we've accomplished here. And uh, no matter what your faith tradition or what you believe, I feel like we, we owe it to a higher power <laughs> to open the doors that ultimately ultimately lead to our success. And I can point to so many instances where it's been just the right person who's shown up at the right time that has made all the difference in the world. And I can certainly say that for the board members that, that uh, have come on board. Um, you know, it was uh, – the the board members who uh, were on board when I first started who um, I think recognized the potential and and frankly were willing to even entertain this idea of co-management for a period of time. Um, That was, uh, you know, that's, that's not a common thing. That's a, it it took some, uh, it took a lot of conversation and uh, people voicing concerns and discussing opportunities through that that we ultimately agreed to give that a try um, it's not I, what I found is that that nonprofit boards tend to be pretty risk-averse so I, I very much credit that that early board who said you know let's give this more non-traditional approach a try um, and I think that very much led to our to our success um, again there have been board members who all, all along have uh, been very engaged that's one of the things I can say about our board is that this, our, ours has not been a um, sort of um, a board just, just for representation, just for names on a letterhead. Ours has always been a board that has been very engaged. Uh, we, we've had very active working committees. We've had folks who have really spent a lot of time and effort helping us get to where we are, and that engagement has been critical. Um, we, over time, have shifted. you know, Early in the organization, when we were a group of, you know, five people on staff, it necessarily meant that board members had to be more engaged in operational activities, but that, you know, as we have grown and built uh, managerial and leadership capacity, it meant, it has meant that the board uh, has had the opportunity and has also taken the opportunity to focus more on governance and strategic direction of the organization. So there's been a lot of work with the board to sort of help define what that role means, and, um, you know, there's always, you're, you're kind of always working between guardrails, you know, where sometimes you sway, you know, one direction, which is too operational, the other is too hands-off, and so you're kind of always going back and forth between those, but our board has been very um, reflective, I think, and looking at how they take on those responsibilities, so, um, you know, that, that's been a very intentional kind of focus for us, and uh, it's something that Ray and I both have valued in the in the board members that we've had is that level of engagement.
2: Well, you know, you talk to these folks, and they're all brilliant. A lot of them are brilliant, and uh, you have conversations with some, and they they're, they're very good technically. And but maybe they just don't have that time. And I think that it's really important to have conversations with people where you kind of get under the hood and. It might seem like it's a little woo-woo, but you really got to find out, okay, what is it that you want to get out of it? And if you're new, you've got to have people that kind of get their hands in the dough, uh, not necessarily people that stand off to the side and say, well, that's a rather large bag of flour. I wonder who's going to move it. But you can get advisors, you get good advisors. If you get people that are brilliant and yeah, they've got some level of commitment. grab them as advisors. You can always use advisors and expertise. So everybody may not be a board member. You know, they may not have that level of commitment. Don't walk away without getting something, even if it's having them write a small check once a month. (laughs) But get something from them. You you can do that and you can find those people with that level of commitment. And when you're giving them what they want, uh, that's, that's the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there are a lot of difficult conversations. There's a lot of stuff out there on those difficult conversations, but you got to be able to have those without people feeling like they're going to get their heads taken off (laughs) and disagree and, uh, give a little bit of thought to the minority opinion. You could have a lone voice in the back of, of the room, uh, that, that, says, hold up, you know, this is all falling into place, but let's think it through a little bit further. And I've seen things turn completely around yeah. on the strength of somebody in the minority, a minority opinion, yeah. causes you to rethink everything. So, but, you know, it's all about people and you're as good as the people that you get behind you. And uh, even if you've got a genius like Hugh Baloo heading the thing up, you still... Uh, need some worker bees and other people to to yeah. make good we'll the thing.
0: On, it <laughs> remember my age and mental condition on air. Oh, I <laughs> thought we could Russell. get through the whole thing we only had six minutes to go
2: <laughs> each, uh, Russell, Russell
0: make always makes really good observations I like to say I pale in comparison
2: maybe next <laughs> week we'll make it through so well, Russell, uh, I
1: have to say uh, I, I appreciate your comment about board members in fact um one of the things I'll share with you that I've learned and in in my 12 years here now is that I would share with you that sort of earlier in my career, uh, you know, I felt like, especially with the warp board that I, I had to have everything under control. I had to have everything buttoned up and everything, you know, tied with a bow, um, had to have all the answers and, and, and had to show that I was, you know, had it together. And, um, you know, I realized that didn't work for too long <laughs> because first of all, circumstances are quick to show you that you really can't control everything. No matter how hard you try or how effective a leader you are, you really can't control everything. And furthermore, I learned that, you know, that, that no one of us, particularly me is as smart as all of us. And so one of the things that I have learned is that, you know, it's important not to not to worry about being so tied up, but rather actually engage people in, in the problems that exist. We're, we're here you know, committed to, to solving world hunger. That's something that people joke about when they say, well, you're not trying to end world hunger. We are trying to end world hunger. So we are uh, necessarily, we, we know we don't have all the answers, but um, it's something I've learned that it's important to, uh, in, you know, allow people to, to support you and, and to support me in this role. And that's what our, our, our board especially has really done. And, uh, and I've also found it's the case with our donors, you know, where, again, I think the pressure for um, uh, executive directors often is, if we're a nonprofit, is to, you know, present the sort of perfect pictures for donors, and uh, and to not uh, share as much the challenges that you face, for fear that they might, uh, you know, withdraw their support or not be as committed. I, I, frank, frankly, I've found just the opposite to be true. The more I've opened up, the more that I've shared what our challenges are, the more people have been willing to step up and provide their support to overcome them.
0: Great. In the last couple of minutes we have left, um, this is really good. We could go on for hours. Um, <laughs> but I think people sign off after, after a period of time here. So so um, just give us a little snapshot of what do you do to c- continue your personal growth as a leader? What are some of the... the basic things that you put on your radar to keep growing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, there are a number of things, Hugh, that are really important to me. Um, I've enjoyed reading your publications. Thank you much for sharing your book and your magazines with me. I'm an avid reader. I I feel like um, uh, there's always things that I'm learning. And furthermore, I've I've always found that the, the right book has never failed to show up at the right time. Uh, recently, I was walking through an airport and saw a book by Kim Scott called Radical Candor, and realized, oh my gosh, that's the that's the uh, philosophy of of radical feedback and and organizational growth that I've been looking for. Um, books like that uh, that again come to me. Um, I've never found them to be anything but the right time. So try to keep reading. Try to keep talking to great folks like you. Um, try to keep sharing uh, openly and candidly and um, with a fair amount of vulnerability to know that uh, just that people can help. And uh, so that's, that's what I've tried to do.
0: You are an avid reader, and you suggested a couple of books to me, and I suggested a couple of you, and you wrote them down. And you did take, there were copies of the magazine, and you promised you'd read them, and that, thank you. That's, that's a compliment. I'm going to do a, a quick sponsor moment here. And then I'm going to give you a chance to leave people with a parting thought, a challenge, a tip. Uh, what would you like to say people as an exit? But we uh, were able to do these podcasts because our sponsors, our corporate sponsors, and today it's Word Sprint. Word Sprint's in Blacksburg, Christiansburg, uh, with Phil, Virginia. Um, they're a print house, but they're actually a donor relations management system. Bill Gilmer taught me that you need the right message to the right person in the right rhythm to let your donors know what you're doing. And he's created a brilliant strategy around decades of research. What we tend to do in charities is thank people for the donation, and we don't correspond again until it's time for the next donation, when in fact we should stay in touch and let them know what's been happening with their money. Wordsprint.com. Bill Gilmer will give you a free consultation, and I have found he prints our magazine, um, nonprofit performance 360 magazine. Really, he helps us retain our tribe, keep them up, keep them up to date on what we're doing and the relevance of what's happening with their money. WordSprint.com. We use them. We recommend that you do. So, Rob, as we're exiting this really good interview, what thought would you like to leave people with?
1: I would, the one thought that I would leave people with is this is possible. We can, and we will end hunger by the year 2030. Please go and join our movement to the website 2030ispossible.org. That's what I'll leave you with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for being here. Russell, we had a good one today. Rob, thank you so much.
1: Thank you both.